when I was in fourth grade, uh, my fourth grade teacher's name was Mrs. Snyder. Does everybody, how many of y'all remember your fourth grade teacher? Does anybody remember your fourth grade? Okay, good. Awesome. She was one of my favorite teachers I remember from elementary school, and there's a lot of different reasons that, that I remember her. We did a lot of fun things in her class, but one of the things, one of the reasons that I remember her being one of my favorites is she had a treasure box. Now, a treasure box, as an adult, looking back, I'm like, it was a box full of little trinkets. It had like erasers and pencils and pens and rulers and maybe like a, a really cheap calculator in there. It, it was a bunch of junk, if I, if I remember rightly. But I remember as a kid, that was like the thing, was like you get to get a treat or a, tr- a prize out of the treasure box. And one of the ways that we would get a prize is we would play a game in the classroom called Around the World. And Around the World was a way that we worked on our like basic math skills and the speed to do our basic math skills. And so what would happen is she would call on two random kids that would stand next to each other, and she would show a flash card, you know, seven times five is 35, right? Seven times five, 35. And she would hold up the flash card, and whoever could say the answer quickest would move on. You would get a point, right? That's the way that that, that this game would work. And so you'd move on, and the goal was for one kid actually to go all the the way around the classroom, around the world, right? It really wasn't around the world. It was beat 20 other kids fastest at math. But whoever could get the most points, whoever went the furthest, would get to get a prize out of the treasure box. And, And, man, that was like the thing. You would go back there, and you would pick out your little pencil with all the NFL logos on it. And you would just hold that bad boy up and walk around the classroom. You'd be dancing back to your your chair, whatever. But I remember that because as you were getting that prize, you were so excited going back to your chair knowing you had won. And there was this sense that I had done a good job. There was a sense of accomplishment. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're doing a good job as a Christian? Right? I mean, I think for for all of us at some level, we want to know, man, am I doing a good job we don't want to just guess. I don't know about you, but I'm, the, I'm still the kind of person that I like to do projects around the house. I'm always doing something, whether it's something Christina's come up with uh, or, or something that I've come up with that she's like, oh, no, like, what are, what are you doing again, right? It happens all the time for me. Um, we, we recently, like right now, we're doing a master bath project. I just finished a laundry room project where I redid our floors and the countertop in there, um, but I don't like doing the projects because of the work. I'm not, I wish I could say I like, in, in, you know, to lay flooring or do carpentry or any of I really don't enjoy all of that. What I enjoy is standing over a project when it's done and feeling that simple sense of accomplishment. You're like, that looks good, right? You're like, that looks good. I know I did a good job. I'm happy with the way that this played out. And sometimes I find myself looking for that same feeling of validation in my Christian walk. And I'm looking to God and I'm looking at the things that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis or over a course of time. And I'm trying to decipher, God, am I doing a good job? I think it's a natural question that we all ask as believers. We all want, at some level, a sense of approval from God. And so when we look at the Christian life, there are moments when it feels like the expectations can be huge. For the past several weeks, we've been walking through this series called The Essentials. And we've been talking about a lot of things that are essential to the Christian life. We've been talking about unity in the body of believers. We've been talking about our identity as, as, as believers uh, and how we're made in the image of God. How we read the Bible. Why the Holy Spirit is essential to our lives. How the church is essential to our, our health as believers. 
Last week, I, I worked through a couple of ideas around why prayer was essential or is essential in your life. And if you zoom out and you look at the Bible as a whole, it can seem like the list of what we're supposed to do and the list of what we're not, not supposed to do are endless. I mean, you could go through the whole Bible and figure out, man, all of these things that our lives are supposed to be about. And it seems like those expectations are ginormous. Even with Jesus, he would say things uh, like in Matthew chapter 5, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, but that seems like a lofty request. Even if Jesus is only talking about, in context of that passage, if he's only talking about loving your enemies perfectly. I mean, that one, one idea seems just incredibly difficult to fulfill. And so as we've explored what the essentials of the Christian life are, which, by the way, we're not covering all of the essentials, we're covering some of them, I think the question that comes up in my own personal life over and over again each and every week is how. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do all of these things? And I think that's where the idea of what we're going to talk about today, which is grace, becomes really important. Now, grace sounds like a really Christian-y word, but in reality, it's not. It is something that, that is known by a lot of different people. Um, but in the Hebrew, if you go and you, you're like looking at the Christian idea of what grace is, in the Hebrew, the word grace is the word hanun. And it comes from, the, the, that's, that's the verb form of the noun hen, which means favor. And most of the moments when you see it in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God's grace is God's favor for people. We see this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, when he's talking about Noah. Before he says that Noah's a righteous man, before he says he's a blameless man, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word there is the word hen, which means grace or delight. You could replace the word favor for either of those words, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What it's referring to, the idea of grace, is receiving something good that you have no business receiving. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it, yet God is giving it to you freely. It's the story of Noah. And so what is grace? And maybe even how does it work? Last week I shared the story about the golden calf. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that message, I would encourage you to go back. You can watch it online um, or listen to it online. But the golden calf story in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is up on the mountain. He's having this intimate moment with God. Down in the valley, the people make a golden calf out of all their jewelry. God gets mad, is going to destroy the people, sends Moses down. But right after all of that takes place, in Exodus 34, Moses goes back up onto the mountain. Right, he, he comes down off the mountain, he gets really angry, he breaks the tablets that God had inscribed, which is like a, a no-no. <laughs> and he goes back up onto the mountain in Exodus 34, and he begins to have another conversation with God. And in that conversation, God reveals part of his character to Noah that we need to pay close attention to. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to read verse 6. And God is talking about himself. Anytime we see God talking about himself, we need to pay extra attention to that because it's revealing something that only God can know. Right? And this is what it says. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's giving us parts of his character here. He's telling us things that are about his nature. Today, we're going to focus in on the idea that God is gracious. Now, in that passage from last week, 
It also says slow to anger. God gets so angry with the Israelites that he was bent on destroying them. He's like, I'm done with them. I'm tired of dealing with them. They are rebellious. They're stubborn. I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm going to clean the slate, and I'm going to get, we're going to move on. Moses, will rebuild with you. And in that moment, Moses actually prays to God. He, he's talking to God in an intimate way. And in that prayer to God, the thing that he is asking for is what? Him. He's asking for God's grace. He's pleading for God's grace. Because if you, if you back up just a little bit, you say, well, what did the Israelites deserve? Well, if, if you believe that God is perfect, which you either believe he's perfect or he's not God. And so if you believe that God is perfect in his decision, then you're believing that he is perfectly right in his decision to destroy Israel. That's the proper way to read that story is that God was right in his declaration to, to get rid of them, to wipe the slate clean. Now, we wouldn't, some of us wouldn't do this because we're, we're mercy-driven. But God, in his perfectness, understands what was perfectly just in that moment. But God doesn't do it. Why? Because Moses pleads for grace. He pleads for a good thing that the Israelites didn't deserve, his love and his favor. And so Moses, in that moment, reminds God of his promises, his promise of grace. And so the core of God's grace is that idea. It's God giving something to humans that is undeserved. Which is everything that he gives to us. Love, joy, peace, all of those things. None of, we don't deserve any of that stuff. His goodness. He's giving us something that we didn't earn. So that's kind of what God's grace is. Why do we need it? Why do we need God's grace? Well, that's... I mean, the, the, the answer is revealed in that story of the golden calf. That's, that's like asking, will we mess up? Brandon, all the time, you know, it, as a redundant statement, he's like, does a one-legged duck swim in a circle? Of course, right? Of course it does. Of course we will mess up. We, there, it's, not, it's not if we'll mess up, it, it's when. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of God's glorious standard. It's not if we're going to mess up, it's when we're going to mess up. And maybe even how much we're going to mess up. Luke 15, Jesus is telling three different parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in those three parables, what Jesus is trying to explain, the, the illustration that God is give, or that Jesus is giving about God is God's idea of giving everything up for us. We know this because of verse one through three. Verses one through three. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. And then he goes into these three different stories. And so the parable of the lost sheep is about a shepherd leaving his fold of 100 sheep, 99 sheep, to go seek after one that got away. The parable of the lost coin is a, is a lady who has 10 coins. She loses one and she forgets about the other nine and searches her whole house for the one. And both of those those stories at the end of the story it says they rejoiced which means they had a party they they had a celebration that seems like in those two stories is bigger than what the two things are of value one sheep to 100 sheep we all of us can see 99 sheep are worth more than one sheep all of us can can see that nine coins are worth more than one coin yet in all of in both of those stories we see the party at the end seem like it's bigger than what it should have been parable lost son it kind of flips a little bit and that story, the, the story is the younger son, the dad has two kids, 
And the younger of the two goes to his dad and he says, hey, I want my inheritance. Which, I don't know how you would receive that if one of your kids said, hey, uh, I'm ready to have everything you're going to give me. Just go ahead and give it to me now. I'm, I'm ready to be done. I just want my money. I'm going to get out of here and, and go on. That's basically what's happening in this moment. He's saying, can I have my money? I'm done with y'all. But at the end of that story, that, that same kid, he returns home after wasting everything. He goes off to a foreign land. He wastes everything. He gets, uh, you know, lives in a, a reckless living, spends all of his money. He's broke. He, he's hit rock bottom. And he comes up with this speech. He's like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. Uh, I'm not worthy to be ca- called your son. I, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to work. You can just put me as a servant in your household. But at the end of this story, the kid returns home, and the dad doesn't just receive him. He doesn't just let him work in his house again. What's he do? He runs out to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He gives him a robe to put on him. He gives him the family signet ring, puts puts it on his finger. He puts sandals on his feet. And then he throws this massive party. And the question that that should pop up in our heads is, doesn't the dad realize what this kid did? He made his bed. He needs to sleep in it. Doesn't doesn't the dad realize how reckless this kid has lived, how how reckless he's he's handled the the family wealth, how how reckless he's handled the idea of family? Of course he does. Of course the dad realizes this in this moment. He realizes how much he's messed up and what he is doing home. The dad's not oblivious to everything that's going on. It's not like the kid's pulled the the wool over his eyes. The kid is ready to work for his father's love, and yet the father pours out grace in the moment. He's giving this kid something good that this kid doesn't deserve. This is us. It's a picture of us. And it's what happens when we get out of our own way and we let God be God in in our lives. This is what happens when we receive God's grace. And so what do we do with God's grace? First, we have to receive it. Ephesians 2.8 tells us God saved you by his grace when when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. So for grace to do anything in our lives, if it's going to actually produce action in our lives, which I believe it does, we've got to be able to receive it first. This is, for most of us, if we're being really honest, we struggle with this. And the reason that we struggle with it is we want that sense of accomplishment. We want to feel like we played a part in something that God is doing. We, we want to feel like we did something to help earn God's love or his grace. or His. We want to be able to stand over our lives and go, I did a good job. I did, I did a good job. But it's when you come to the place in your life that you fully believe that you've done nothing to earn God's grace. It's at that point. I believe that you can receive it. In this verse in Ephesians 2.8, in the ESV, it says we are saved by grace through faith. What we got to be careful about when we think about the way that God loves us or that he pours out his grace on us, we can't view it as a transaction. Oftentimes we're like, okay, God, I'm going to give my faith. I'm going to have faith in you, and you're going to give me something in return. That's not the way this works. When Paul is saying that it is a gift from God, the it in that phrase is is all-encompassing that it refers to grace as a gift it's also referring to your faith as a gift your faith is not self-produced you if you read the bible properly you actually can't believe in god without god god gives us grace he gives us faith 
and he gives us salvation. All three of those are the it, and they're all gifts. So first we have to receive it. The second thing we have to do is reflect it. Now, the reason that you reflect it is because you can't give God's grace. Only God can give God's grace. But what you can do is when you are, receive God's grace, you reflect it to other people. So often what happens in our lives is we receive God's grace and we start doing life. We have this, you know, salvation in our life and it hurts you. And you feel hurt by their mistake and that you feel like, oh, they betrayed me. They did this thing and I didn't, I didn't feel like I fully knew them. Or maybe they, they, they sinned against you. They hurt you. They betrayed you. They burned you. And so often what we do in the Christian life is instead of reflecting grace the same way that God gave it to us, which is freely, instead of giving grace and reflecting it freely, what happens is we try to turn and sell that grace to other people. And we say, oh, we'll do this if you do X, Y, Z. We'll give you grace if you do this. See, the idea of grace is amazing wonderful when we're the ones getting it but when we are the ones that are supposed to be giving it it's at that moment that we realize that what was free to us cost God so very much because when we are in the place of giving grace it feels like we are sacrificing so much to give it the question that I think comes out of all of those scenarios though is what about when grace is abused what about when that person in your life that you've forgiven and forgiven, and over and over and over again, it feels like you're giving grace over and over and over, and it's wearing you out, and the person that you thought you knew has destroyed that image, and so when is enough enough? When do you, when do you have to make those decisions to cut ties, to distance yourself? What do we do in those moments? I think Romans 6 gives us an idea of, of how to understand our role in grace. Romans 6 1 says, Well then, shouldn't we should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more of his wonderful grace? Uh, the phrase well then tells us to look at the verse right before, which is 5 20 and 21, which says God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled all over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The question here is, does sinning make the grace given more valuable? The more somebody hurts you, the more that they burn you, the more that they do this, isn't that grace that you give them at that point more? If we sin more, doesn't God's grace increase? The bigger the crime, the bigger the payment, the bigger the forgiveness. And Paul says, actually, no. If you think that, you're seeing grace wrongly. He says, here's what grace should do. It should change us. Grace should cause us to change. The same thing applies to other people in our lives. Grace is, I believe, it's the most powerful thing that you can actually give someone. Because it comes from a place of sacrificial love. When you show other people grace, it, is, it, it produces a sacrificial moment in your own life because you're putting your own selfish desires out of the way for the betterment of the other person. And I think Matthew 5, Jesus helps us understand even that concept a little bit better. Now, you're going to have to bear with me because some of you have heard this taught, and I'm going to teach it a little bit different. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, it says, You have heard the law 
that says the punishment must match the injury. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it preached this way, you've heard it taught this way, but I'm going to flip it. He says, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, what is Jesus saying here and how does it relate to grace? The question that that comes up is, should we be doormats for other people? Should we just lay down and let other people walk on us as believers? I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. I think there's actually something deeper that Jesus is saying. And, And what we need to be careful about with this passage is that Jesus doesn't seem to be telling his followers to lay down in any of these scenarios. He's not saying that. That's, that's, that's not what's playing out here. Rather, I believe he's t- teaching about how to respond to somebody who is abusing power and holding them accountable for their actions in light of grace. First example in that culture is if someone slaps you. Um, and, and so when we read that in our culture, we read that as if somebody slaps you like this, with this which is an open palm slap to the face. Which would be disgraceful in our culture. If I were to just walk up to somebody in, our, in the worship service and slap them, you'd be, everybody would be like, oh my gosh, what just happened there? That, in that culture, that, that still played the, played the role. But he says if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, for somebody to slap you on the right cheek, it meant that they had to slap you with the back of their hand. Which was even more disgraceful. Even more uh, abusive of power, of showing somebody I'm, I'm more valuable than you, I'm more powerful than you, you need to submit to me. As somebody who owns slaves would do to, a, to, to their slave. That's, that's the imagery that Jesus is giving here. And he says, if somebody does that to you, what do you do? You turn them the other cheek, which forced that person to slap you with an open palm. And in that culture, you only slap somebody with an open palm if you are viewed as equal. He's saying, hey, the, when, you, when grace changes you, you learn to show strength differently. Second example, if you're sued in court. He says, and your shirt's taken from you. Go ahead and give them your coat too. What's, what's he trying to show there? He says, if somebody sues you for your shirt, you just take everything off. You, you just you take everything off and you stand there fully exposed in the courtroom showing the greed of the other person. That's, that's the example Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, if somebody sues you for your, your shirt, you take, you take off your, your coat. In that, in that day and age, people didn't wear pants, so you guys can put two and two together. What's he saying here? He's saying show strength in a different way because grace changes the way that we respond. We don't respond with another lawsuit trying to sue him for their shirt or their coat or whatever. He says show everyone the greed that the other person has. The third example is that of a soldier asking you to carry their pack. Now, a Roman soldier could do this. There's a legal obligation that they could come up to somebody and say, hey, you're going to carry my gear for a mile. But at the end of that mile... By obligation, they had to take that pack back. What's Jesus say? If somebody comes up to you and asks you to carry it one mile, you go two. What's he trying to show? He's saying at the end of that mile, you keep on walking. That Roman soldier is going to be wrestling you in public. And it's going to be showing everybody the abuse of their power. It's going to be showing everybody what's really going on. All three of these examples, I think, help us in knowing what to do with somebody who abuses grace that's given doesn't mean that there's not earthly consequences for their actions. What it means is grace changes our reactions. Grace has to change us first. 
It has to have such an impact on you as an individual believer in your intimacy and the way that you view God that it changes the way that you view the world. If our reactions look the same as anybody else who's not a follower of Jesus, what are we showing the world? If we act just like anybody else out there and we go, oh, somebody wronged me, so I'm going to sue them. Somebody hit me, so I'm going to hit them back. What's that show the world? That we're the exact same, that Christ really hasn't changed our hearts and our lives. Grace changes us. Grace, I believe, can be the most powerful thing that you can show somebody because it's a form of love that's completely undeserved. It's giving a good gift that that person had no business receiving. It doesn't mean that there's cookie-cutter responses for how you show it, but that as it changes you on the inside, it changes you on the outside. And everything that we've talked about through this series, how to read the Bible, unity in the church, your identity in Christ, why the church is so significant, how to pray, all of that is in light of grace. The question is, have you really experienced the grace of God in your life? And the litmus test for if you've done that is, are you reflecting it? Because if you're not reflecting it, chances are you haven't received it. Because once you have received it, it changes everything about you. It changes the way you treat people. It changes the way you look at the world. And so the question is, have you received it? Mrs. Snyder's class, one of the things I didn't tell you is I was terrible at math. I still am today. I'm not great at math. I have to use calculators and things like that. Praise Jesus for those things. I use those tools in my life a lot. But as a fourth grade student, I was terrible at addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. I just wasn't quick, as quick as everybody else. I could do it if I could sit down and write it down, but doing it in the moment, I would go home and practice with my mom because I was so competitive that I hated losing, right? Some of y'all can relate. Like, I would go home and practice. She was a genius teacher because I would go home and practice my math so that I wouldn't lose in class in front of everybody else. But one of the things that, I, that she did that I remember so specifically is at the end, when the, the kid who got the most points, the kid who, who deserved the prize, got to go get the prize, she would also pick one random kid who didn't win one match to go get a prize. And so often, when I got to get a prize, that was the reason that I got one. And I remember going and getting a treasure out of that, and you grab the pencil with, you know, all the NBA teams, and fully knowing I did nothing to deserve that pencil. <laughs> In the grand scheme of life, it was just a pencil. But as I look at it now in view of God's grace, and I didn't deserve it, yet somebody was showing me a principle of God that I didn't know I would need till years and years later in my life. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your personal life. I don't know who's wronged you, who's burnt you, who's hurt you, who's, who's sin, uh, uh, their individual sin and something that's completely separated from your family, the way that they've hurt you and you're holding a grudge or bitterness. The question is, have I received grace? And if I have, then am I reflecting it to the people who need it the most? And I can't answer that. That's between you and the Lord and between you and other people. But it's something that I think we all need to think about. Let's pray.
God, in your perfectness, you know exactly what we need all the time. In your perfectness, you know exactly what we need all the time. And so often, what we need the most is grace. We need your favor for you to look at us. And without us earning it, without us deserving it, you look at us with full delight. And it doesn't make any sense to me, God. And so, Father, as we pray today, as we respond, as we sing praises to you, God, if there's somebody in here that, man, they're far from you, they've never received grace, I pray that they would have an encounter with you. They would come forward, they would talk to one of our pastors about what grace is. But God, for those who, that we know we've received it, we know we are saved, we know we're followers. But if we were to really examine our lives, there's some areas in our lives where we're not reflecting grace the way that you give it to us. And God, what that should do is cause a little bit of tension in our hearts as your Holy Spirit is correcting us, as your Holy Spirit is convincing us that your ways are best. And so God, I'm just gonna ask for you to do what only you can do. And that is move in the individual heart and life of every single person in this room, that we wouldn't walk out of here the exact same that we walked in, but we would walk out changed because grace changes us. Jesus, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.